morning, everyone. And thank you, Stephen. If you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 1? It's page 883 in the, uh, in the Pew Bibles. Dare to be a Daniel is, uh, is one of those universally recognized and recognizable phrases, I'm sure, or I'll guarantee you we've all heard it. Interestingly, and, and some of you will know this, it's, it's also the title of the late Tony Benn's autobiography that was published in 2005. And if you want to know why Tony Benn entitled his autobiography, Dare to Be a Daniel, you'll have to look it up when you go home on Google or else buy the book. But for the next few months, we're going to read part one of this Old Testament book of Daniel. So we're going to read chapters one through to six. We're going to leave chapters seven to 12, although we we might uh, touch on a couple of them. Now, we've not called the series Dare to Be a Daniel, although that would have worked. But I have instead chosen to call it Keep the Faith, which is the title of a 1992 album by Bon Jovi, but let's not go there. Uh, Daniel's story, and hopefully we'll, we'll discover this, raises lots of issues that are highly relevant for us today. But one of the main things that you quickly pick up and observe is that this is the story of a young man who, along with a few friends, had a deep faith, which he kept for years. And another key feature is that Daniel kept the faith in a hostile environment, a foreign land. He kept the faith in a culture that was profoundly ungodly and anti-Christian. Daniel kept the faith even though many of the kind of external support structures that he once enjoyed were stripped away from him. Daniel and his friends kept the faith because there was a depth to their faith that sustained them through all kinds of pressures and temptations. They were, if you like, deep people. And so right at the start of this new series, and right up front this morning, let me ask you a very simple question. How deep is your faith? How deep is your faith. I have mentioned this before, but one of my honest to God fears is to be a person, to be a pastor, to be a leader in a church that is a mile wide, but an inch deep. It's so important that amidst all the activity and all the meetings and all the events of this church or of any church, that people are actually growing in their faith, that people are being equipped to serve, that people are becoming strong and confident and effective in their faith. There's got to be substance to ensure that our faith not only survives, but actually thrives in each and every condition and context that we find ourselves in. Yes, in here, that's great. But our faith has also got to survive and thrive out there 24-7. It's got to survive and thrive within these walls and beyond these walls. Let me ask you again, how deep 
is your faith. Daniel found himself in exile. I'll say more about that in a moment. But he was taken away from familiar surroundings where language and where customs were alien to him. He found himself in a place where other gods were worshipped and served, where there were no props to bolster his faith like he once had. And yet, Daniel didn't suffocate. Daniel didn't lose his faith. In fact, he grew in his faith. His faith deepened. He survived. He thrived because there was depth. He had what Gerard Kelly refers to as an intrinsic faith. A faith that was so fully internalized, so deeply rooted, that it shaped everything. Again, this morning, how deep is your faith? Because given the environment that we now find ourselves in, Giving the challenges that we face on all kinds of faith-related issues, if our faith is not intrinsic, if it is not becoming wider, if it is not becoming deeper, if it is not becoming stronger, then I want to suggest it may not last. It may not hold up, it may not hold out. And therefore, I honestly believe and hope that we can discover and learn loads from Daniel's story before it's too late or before instead of dare to be a Daniel, we discover it's rare to be a Daniel. So please stand with me for the public reading of God's faith-intensifying word. And I will endeavor to take my time as I read this. <laughs> In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved or purposed in his heart, as Stephen said, not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the chief official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food 
and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding in all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Grab a seat. I, uh, I'm not... I'm not gonna go into lots of background detail. The reason is that many of you know it, plus some of you might remember that James Greenwood took you as a church through this book of Daniel just over seven years ago before I came to Windsor. So many of you know the background. But these people find themselves in exile. Jerusalem, that esteemed city of David has been besieged. The temple, that powerful symbol of God's presence has been ransacked, has been wrecked. And the Israelites are carted off some 500 miles to Babylon as captives. Everything's fallen, or should I say, is falling apart. But this is not a total surprise, not a bolt from the blue. Via Moses and subsequent prophets like Isaiah, God had made it clear, listen, exile's in store for the people if they're disobedient. And they had been. And so here and now, and we're talking about 600 years before Jesus, here and now, the Israelites are ripped away from their promised land, ripped away from the always accessible presence of God in the temple, and they're forced into exile in Babylon. And the sense of shock was tangible. And no wonder they sat down and they wept and they asked the Psalm 137 says, how are we going to sing the Lord's song in this strange land? Exile was for the Hebrew people, as one commentator has described it, a corporately experienced car crash, a national invitation to post-traumatic stress disorder. This was serious. It all seemed impossible. It's a lost cause. How is their faith going to survive? Never mind thrive. How is it going to survive in this hostile pagan land and environment? Was it? And so there appeared to be little or no hope of a future. And for many people, and this is not a new thought, it's been said for a number of years now, but our present day context and culture is a kind of exile. Now, I know this has been overstated. But in an increasingly godless, post-Christendom, secular environment, there are many Christians who feel and have felt for years that they're singing God's song in a strange land. Back in 2004, Stuart Murray wrote a book called Post-Christendom. And part of that book's kind of tracked the, the journey from where the church once was to where it is now. So for example, the journey has taken us as a church from the center to the margins. The Christian story and churches used to be at the heart of society. We used to be consulted. 
We used to be considered, but you know something? Now we're marginal. Fewer and fewer people give us stuff about the church or what the church has to say on important matters. In fact, on any matter, does anyone care anymore what the church has got to say? As someone else has written, in the same way that Israel was sent into exile by God, we have been sent into exile by our culture as it finds the church unnecessary and irrelevant to its day-to-day existence. It's not... Is that not true? Is that not where we find ourselves? As far as many people are concerned, just unnecessary, irrelevant. And therefore, so many of us feel isolated and dislocated, feel uneasy and uncomfortable. And so as we engage with the story of Daniel, I pray we will not only make connections from this ancient text, but we will also find hope. We will find inspiration. We'll find our singing voices again. We will find a deeper faith. And maybe, just maybe, as Walter Brueggemann says, we will find that exile is more an opportunity than a threat. Let's unpack and explore this story in a little more detail. Daniel and a number of others, we don't know exactly how many others, but they're selected for this three-year educational program in what appears to be a process of assimilation. It's to prepare them for key jobs in the Babylonian civil service. And they're chosen based on their strength, based on their looks, and based on their health. And they're going to be trained in the literature and in the language of Babylon. Plus, they're assigned daily rations of food from the king's kitchen. And three of the young men are identified out of the huge group. Three are identified along with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But right from the word go, their names are changed. Which in the ancient Near East was a huge deal. This was massive. Because your name affirmed your identity. Therefore, Hebrew names, as many of you know, referred to God. So, Hananiah means Yahweh shows grace. Azariah means Yahweh helps. You see, those names, their original names, their Hebrew names reminded these boys, we belong to God. But not anymore. You're given new names, but you're not just given new names, you're given new identities. And as many of you know, the new names that they were given were in honor of the Babylonian God. So now it's Belteshazzar. It's Shadrach, it's Meshach, and it's Abednego. And then we read that that one of the four, Daniel, and he appears to be the kind of group spokesperson, the leader. He speaks up and he speaks out because he's got an issue. Not with the name change. Interesting. Not with the prospect of studying the literature and the language in Babylon and all that that would have meant. Doesn't seem to have been an issue. But he rejects the king's prescribed food and drink. Probably because he reckoned it had first been offered to idols. And in verse 8 that Stephen reminded us of and read for us, it says that Daniel determined, he resolved, he purposed in his heart not to devile himself. And Stephen said that's a strong word. And it means here was someone who took a conscious decision. Here was someone who gave the serious thought. 
Daniel drew a bit of a line in the sand. And therefore, he asked permission not to eat unacceptable foods. Now, for a start, that was brave. To say anything, given the circumstances, took guts. But to challenge one of the key course requirements, that took real courage. You see, for Daniel, silent acceptance on this one wasn't a viable option. He had to say something. And people of deep faith are courageous. That's one of the characteristics of people of deep faith. They are courageous. They are brave. They are willing to take risks. And Daniel, it seems, was willing to compromise on certain issues and things. Names, no problem. Proposed education, re-education of the program. Yeah, fine. Daniel was also willing to be prepared to work for a pagan government. Fine. But on a certain subject, he wasn't prepared to compromise. And here we find a young man walking a tightrope between compromise and conviction. A tightrope that many people of faith find themselves forced to walk at times or a lot of the times. And you know, one of the characteristics of people of deep faith is that they walk this tightrope, they attempt to walk it with integrity. The balance between accommodation and stand is tricky for us. Let's be honest. The tension between acceptance and distinctiveness is strong. We feel it. The clash between faith and culture is intense. And therefore, navigating this tightrope, this balancing act, because that's what it feels like. I don't know to you, but that's what it feels like to me. It's not easy. Where, Where do we draw the lines in the sand? Where do you draw the lines in the sand? When do you speak up? When do you speak out? When do you bite your tongue? Do we resist culture? Or do we withdraw from it? Do we stand against it? Or do we live within it? Do we obey Christ in the church and then submit and obey to our political leaders in government and in community life irrespective of what they pass and decide. See, these are all the kind of questions that Daniel's story throws up. And it's impossible to answer those here and now. This is just part of this journey that I hope you're going to embark on with us as a church. But you know something? People of deep faith wrestle with these kind of questions. People of deep faith embrace these kind of questions. We don't run away from them. But what I would say is this, Daniel's story, and not just here in this chapter, but as it unfolds, does teach us that the struggle that he and his friends face, please hear this, is not to make the culture Christian, but it's to give us a glimpse of how a Christian should live in a hostile culture with courage and integrity. Daniel and his friends didn't set out to make the culture Christian. Daniel and his friends set out to teach us, what does it look like to live as a Christian in a hostile culture? I know I'm jumping away for, but you know, it's worth worth referring to Christ teaching on, on how faith acts and interacts with the world. Again, I realize I can only scratch the surface, but let me remind you of two key aspects of his teaching. 
Jesus calls us to be in the world, but not off it, John 17, and also to be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. As we go out, how? How does Jesus send us out? As sheep amongst wolves. The likelihood is we are going to get eaten alive. And Daniel epitomizes both of these approaches. Do you know he is in Babylon, in it, right up to his neck? But, none of, but, th- but no, he's not off Babylon. He remains faithful. He does retain his distinctiveness. He worships God. He continues to worship and serve God. He's faithful to God, but he's innocent and he's shrewd. He doesn't launch an angry attack or assault on his captors, even in taking his stand. And I find this fascinating. Even in taking his stand not to eat the unacceptable foods, he asks permission. He acts civilly and courteously. He navigates a course of retaining integrity and faithfulness to his God and to his deeply held faith in the midst of an unbelieving world. And as I said earlier, Daniel has something to teach us about cultural engagement. Daniel has something to teach us about walking that tightrope. He did it at a particular time, in a particular way, in a particular culture. And for us, what's our challenge? We need to discern the times that we live in. We need to react in an appropriate, God-honoring, faith-affirming way. And we need to express our faith in a different and rapidly changing post-Christendom, post-modern, secular, however else you want to describe this culture. Discern the times that we live in, react in an appropriate God-honoring way with integrity and with courteousness. But back to Babylon, because although Daniel said no to some of the food, he didn't avoid all of the food of the king's palace. He asked to be served vegetables. And let's be honest, there's no reason to think that these vegetables hadn't been offered to gods along with the meat and drink. So we've got to be very careful in our reading of Scripture that we don't become too rigid and dogmatic in our assumptions. It's back to that tightrope. It's back to that balancing act. There's got to be give. There's got to be take. But maybe, just maybe, there's something else going on here. And we need, to be, we need to be upfront about this. Maybe this is about more than drawing certain lines to simply avoid compromise. Maybe Daniel had another point to prove. Maybe he had another hope in mind. You see, whenever he asked for permission not to eat certain foods, the chief official got incredibly anxious and nervous. Not so much about Daniel's request, but about the implications for him personally. You see, he thinks, well, Daniel, if, if, if you and your friends refuse to eat the food and drink that the king has assigned for you to eat and drink, it's only going to be a matter of time before you start looking awful, before you start looking dreadful, before you start looking less well than those who are on the rich king's diet or the king's rich diet. And if the king gets word that you're starting to fade and fail and look awful and look dreadful and not be as healthy as everybody else, do you know something? It's my head that's on the line here, Daniel. And so Daniel has a suggestion. Please follow this carefully. 
because part of what happens next is often missed and often overlooked. Daniel speaks privately to the guard whom the chief official has appointed over Daniel and his friends. And Daniel says to him on the QT, or so it would seem, to give them only vegetables and water for 10 days and then compare and contrast their appearance with that of the others. And the guard agrees, and so the test occurs. And 10 days later, Daniel and his friends look healthier and better nourished than all the others. And so what does the guard do? The guard says, okay, Daniel, you can stick with your vegetable and water intake for the rest of the three years. And as they graduate, turns out they're the best in the class. None are equal to Daniel and his three friends. And when the king quizzed them on all kinds of matters, he discovered they were 10 times better than all the magicians and all the enchanters in Nebuchadnezzar's whole kingdom. That's impressive. That's amazing. And although there's lots to consider, the bit that gets missed, the detail that gets overlooked is that their diet, their decision was private, not public. They didn't make a public proclamation of their intention. They didn't stage any food strikes. Daniel quietly approached the chief official to ask permission and then the guard off in charge of their diet. And so Daniel takes a stand and he draws a line and he guards his heart and he resolves, he purposes in his heart, I'm not going to defile myself, but you know, so I'm not going to make a song and a dance about this. There may be issues where Daniel does make a song and a dance. There may be issues where this becomes public, as we will see if you continue to journey with us through the rest of this narrative. But for now, Daniel quietly retains his integrity and he nurtures his faith. And what does he prove at the end of three years? My God is greater. My God is stronger. My God is faithful. And so as the four of them stand before Nebuchadnezzar, the king takes great pride in all of his graduates and doesn't, it would seem, know a thing about this particular detail of the story. The four boys knew. The guard knew. And so sometimes people of deep faith They know where to draw the lines for themselves. And they then trust God with the outcome. But sometimes we can't force others to draw the same lines as we do. We can't. And maybe there are certain things where we need to do more whispering than shouting. We need to create more silence than side shows. Or in the words of one writer, we need to be subtle and sensitive, reflective and redemptive, cultured and curious. But as we finish this morning, I want to finish by drawing attention to God. Because although Daniel is a key figure, And he is going to be during these next few months. And he is an impressive character. In fact, compared to many other Bible characters, Daniel doesn't appear to have any obvious weaknesses. He doesn't appear to have any blind spots. As Gene Getz puts it, Daniel is one of the few principal characters of the Old Testament concerning whom there's not one word of criticism. 
But although Daniel is going to occupy a lot of airtime, what I really want us to do, what I really want us to do is retain focus on God, recognizing that it is God who is at work in and through Daniel's life. It is God who's in control. It's God who's sovereign. It's God who's working out and fulfilling his purposes. And Daniel knew that. And Daniel submitted to that as people of deep faith do. Because please look again at this chapter if you have it open. Just scan this as we close. Because all through it you trace this reality that God's in control. God is the key character, not Daniel. Right from verse 2 we see, who is it that delivers Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hands? It's God. That's what it says. God allowed the exile. Look down to verse 9. Who is it that caused the chief official to show favor and compassion towards Daniel? It says God caused that. It was God who ensured that the 10-day test and the three-year diet produced the results it did. Those guys didn't have a balanced diet for three years. God ensured that at the end of the three years, they looked healthier and better nourished than anyone else. God did that. And finally, verse 17, who is it that gave Daniel and his friends these 10 times better knowledge than anyone. God, it says. It's explicit. It's not even implied. It's explicit. Yes, Daniel deserves the credit, but God deserves all the glory. And so although Daniel could have been, and plus his friends and plus anyone else, could have been forgiven that the defeat of Judah, the loss of the temple, the being taken into exile, that is all disturbing proof that you know something? God doesn't care. God's not in control. God isn't faithful. God's fallen asleep. Or do you know something at the very best? All of this, all that we've been through, all that we had hoped for, it's all meaningless. Where's God in this? But no, Daniel said, God is still at work. God is still with me. God is still with my friends. God is still in control. God is still pulling the, tr the strings. And therefore, Daniel resolves in his heart, you know something? I'm going to remain committed to the bigger picture. And that's so hard at times for us. Because for some of you, there's things going on in your lives that just don't make any sense where you can't see purpose. You can't see purpose in this, whatever this is for you. It seems for some of us, God's absent at the moment. God's uninterested. God's uninvolved. And yet faith, true faith, deep faith is what? It's confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we don't see. And there's some of us here and we just, we just don't see purpose in what we're going through or in what someone else we know and care about is going through. And in Babylon, I've no doubt that Daniel and his friends were frightened by the pressures 
and realities of exile, but you know something, they were hopeful. And despite the fact that so many of their support structures, I mean, there was no, there was no more corporate worship gatherings for these guys. There was no more meeting together with like-minded people. All the support structures were ripped away. They found themselves living, breathing, dealing with a pagan culture. But their faith, their intrinsic, deeply rooted faith continued to shape and influence everything. They lived out their faith in a foreign land. And for us, who sometimes feel like we're living in exile, that's the challenge. Frightened? Yeah. Overwhelmed at times? Feels like it. But we're going to stay faithful and hopeful. We're going to draw lines on occasions where we believe we need to draw lines for us. But we're going to do it graciously, sensitively, wisely, maybe even privately at times. And ultimately, we're going to trust God's still in control here. God's still working out his purposes. And so I ask you again, how deep is your faith? And what needs to happen what do you need to do out of this morning in our engagement with God's word to allow it to go deeper? Because I hope and pray we will keep the faith and we'll just keep singing God's song and we'll keep singing God's songs in a foreign land. And as we close this morning, we're going to sing a song, Oceans, and I know it's my favorite song. Apologies. I know it's my favorite song. Has been since sabbatical last year. A year's nearly up and then we'll drop it, Okay. We're going to close with oceans. And do you know the reason I want us to close with this? Is because of a line in it. In oceans deep, my faith will stand. In oceans deep, my faith's going to stand. Please, God. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander and my faith will be made strong.